Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography Podcast. Today, my guest is Amanda Quick. She is an international best-selling author, a podcast host, a public speaker, and a sex and human trafficking advocate. Amanda, welcome. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Excellent. So happy to have you here. Thank you for taking and making the time to be here with me today. I am so excited to jump in and share all about your story and your journey and the beautiful light you put out into the world through all the work that you're doing. Thank you. So with all that being said, I want to really jump right into things and get started. I know that you have quite the story and journey as a result of your own personal experience. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that and your own personal story and journey? Yeah. So my story starts in 2016. I was a full-time stay-at-home mom. I had three very young children and I thought life was pretty normal, good-ish. Not a whole lot of complaints, just a regular American family. And one night my husband doesn't come home from work and all of the worst case scenarios are playing in my head. I can't find him. Hospitals don't have him, etc. I eventually find him. He had been arrested for attempted human trafficking, was sitting in jail with a $250,000 bond. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, your heart must have just sank and dropped. What was the first thought that ran through your head? Well, I about dropped the phone and I was like, are you sure? Is that the right name? And I didn't even know what the charge meant. My head goes to the the movie version of it and the shipping containers. And we're in this like small Colorado town. I'm like, huh? There's some mistake. And then my mind goes to, well, is he dead in a ditch and somebody stole his wallet? That's the level of belief that I have that this could even right. be possible. Wow. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. You're going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, so to say my world exploded doesn't even it's do it just because, yeah. And eventually the next morning, my first thought was to go get lawyers. He needs help because this couldn't possibly be real. And eventually I learned that it is kind of real, but there's still his version of events is very different. And until I eventually bond him out, I don't actually get to hear his side because he's in jail. And his side of the story is that he was soliciting adults which was news to me. And when they offered children, he didn't think it was real and he had to go figure out if it was real so he could report it. This was his story. So I'm hit with more new information with my husband's been soliciting escorts. What? And children? Huh? What? And he's claiming that he's being charged with something he didn't do and he would never and all the things. And I'm already unable to process. I'm already in complete shock and I don't have any kind of emotional response. I I don't even know what to think at this point. And yet I have a ton of my own wounding around losing my father and all of my beliefs about my children and who he is and who I am and all these things. And through all of that, I choose in that time to believe him because I can't possibly fathom that he could be a monster. And I choose to believe him. I choose to support him thinking that if I support him, that we can get through this and he can get whatever help he needs. And I think it's a sex addiction. I don't think it's anything worse. And so I'm like, well, I've got young kids. We're financially dependent. There's a lot wrapped up in that. Yeah. And so I stay with him through the criminal proceedings. Basically what had happened is it was a sting operation trying to solicit, see which men would want to purchase children for their purposes. They offered an 11 and 14 year old. He asked for both and he did go as far as showing up and then got spooked because they didn't follow the normal protocol. You don't usually pay first, you pay after. So he knew lots of this stuff. But the other thing is family members aren't given the arrest records. They're saving everything for potential trial. So they don't share details. And I don't even want to hear it. I'm like, you're not going to turn me against my husband. That's my 
where my head is at. So I stay with him and much to my surprise, he gets offered a plea deal with no jail time with only probation. That in privileged white America, all their goal is to get them into sex offender probation so they can get them into treatment. They believe right. treatment is the way. So we could have a whole episode on that. Yes, <laughs> But that's the reality. He was offered only probation, which of course he took because he's off scot-free, essentially. Yeah. He has to be in probation. And in Colorado, his constitutional right to parent remained intact. So he was even allowed to move back into the home with unrestricted access to our children, wow. which at the time I celebrated because right. again, I have all yeah. my wounding, all of my things. I don't want to be but do this by myself. And I assume life will go back to normal-ish, but that's not even a choice anymore. He can't get work anymore in his field as a now felon yeah. and his mental health is shot. I eventually go back to work. But as I'm going back to work, I start to leave this bubble of reality that I had created where it was me and him and, my, and our kids and, and that was it. And we could get through anything if we stayed together and all of the wound up stuff in that. And I start to look outside of that bubble just at work. And I'm terrified that anybody finds out that I'm connected yeah, to this. I'm deeply ashamed to be married to him and yet don't know how to unravel myself. And I start to shift my perspective a little bit. I start to see that it's the bubble that's the problem. It's all of these beliefs surrounding it, but I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I can't possibly take on being the one that tear it down. I had just fought so hard to keep my family together. And eventually I start to process that he's admitting to cheating on me. I don't even know how many times the numbers kept changing. And I start to not be able to look at him and I start to not be able to see him in the same way. And I don't know what to do with it. And I start drinking. I start trying to numb myself. I start pushing away. But I, again, I don't know how to take action. And yeah. I find myself attracted to a coworker wanting to just escape my entire life. Yeah because I can't handle. And I realized that this is not okay. I'm not okay. Coming home and needing to drink half a bottle of wine to even talk to my husband is a problem. And so I decide I'm going to separate. I'm going to push away. I'm going to say I need space. And he pulls on all of my childhood wounding and let's keep the family together. I'll move into another room and we'll just be co-parents, but we don't have to tear the kids' lives apart, right? We're going right. to pull on that string. So, of course, I agree. I don't want to do yeah. that. So now I'm living with my husband while starting to date, starting to do different things. And I start to see the manipulations that I never could see before. Right. I start to see the installations in the kids. I start to see that they're being angry at me because of all the things he's saying. It's my fault now that we're not together. Right. It's my fault that things are different. And I start to go, this is not okay, but I still don't see the danger yet. I just think he's a manipulative asshole. To be honest, mm -hmm. I don't see the horror behind it. And eventually we do, he starts the divorce process because he decides this is the way to get me back. If I scare her and I separate and he tries to kick me out of the house to say he's the primary parent. He wow. tries to do all of these things. And then he's, oh, let's drop the divorce. No, no, we're not doing that. And I start to see more and more for what it is, but I still didn't get the danger until I saw the sexual grooming on my own children. And my middle child starts to say things that are grossly inappropriate. And I go, oh my God. And I go, oh wait, this is the man who was arrested for trying to have sex with children. Why am I surprised? Why is yeah. this a shock? It's been in front of my face the whole time. But because I supported him through the criminal trial, I was faced with a very uphill battle in family court because he had his full constitutional right to parents. And in the eyes of the court, he was an equal parent. And so essentially I had to figure out how to prove that my children, these children were in danger and the pattern of behavior was less relevant because the court believes your relationship with your own children is different. And so obviously this was my low point, not the arrest. This was my low point because I also could see that I caused it. I also could see that I had chosen to stay and I set this up and now my children were in the midst of this all. And and so I had to figure out how to unwind myself from that, how to take accountability while also not letting it take me out because yeah. I had to fight for them. And I was in therapy. I was diagnosed with PTSD. Like I had all of those things happening while also trying to figure out how to navigate this. And as you can imagine, it was no easy feat. And my lawyers were great, but they still had their ways of doing things. And I still was giving up a lot of my power to others to help me what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want any of this. And it was actually my therapist that suggested I go see a psychic. And I was completely agnostic. You want me to go see a fortune teller? Like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> She's like a regular mental health therapist. I mean, 
okay, because I'm willing to try anything at this point. And I go see this lady because why the hell not? And she starts telling me about a past life of mine where I was with the same person and he was a drunk instead of a sex addict, but the energies behind the addiction was the same. The abuse was the same. This time it was physical. Now it's more mental and emotional. More And basically in this lifetime, he beat me to death. Wow. And my body has this visceral response to her telling me this story. And she says, you have to get a hold of that fear because it's not even this today fear because it was true. I was terrified of the man. He was, yeah. I felt like he was stalking me. I felt like everything I said was turned and twisted against me. He was eventually diagnosed with a couple of different personality disorders. Like it, it was clear that I didn't have the tools to face this. And I was terrified. And she said, you have to get a hold of that fear. You're not in the hundreds where women don't have right to own property and can't do the things. And you need to decide here and now to be done with him. And I realized that I had not fully made that decision because I wanted my family. I wanted the safety of my marriage. I wanted none of this to be real, even when yeah. it was in front of my face. Of and I had to make the decision to shift everything in that moment to say, I am done done with this once and for all and mean it in every dimension of existence that was. And that day was the day everything started to change. And I left that appointment and I realized that there was more help available. I just needed to ask. I needed to stop hiding what was going on instead of just talking to just my lawyers. I needed to go broader because everybody knows somebody yeah. and everybody, somebody knows somebody and not everything panned out as useful, but the ones that did were massive shifts in my case. And I got a connection to Homeland Security. I found the arresting officers. I got the case file unsealed. I got all of this evidence that I had never had before. I got my kids. I started listening to them in a different way. I was recording conversations to use in court. And our divorce case was six weeks after that visit with the psychic. And we went to court and it was really the fight of my life. And I stood on that stand and shared what I was experiencing and why I believed what I was and that the kids were in danger now and the court needed to intervene now. And March 3rd, 2020, two weeks before the pandemic hit, my divorce was final and the judge gave him one last chance. She took away all overnight visits. She said he gets a couple of afternoons. He needs to do these 10 things if he wants any time with them. And if he doesn't, he only gets supervised visitation. And he did not a single one on the list. And so by April, he was only allowed supervised visitation. And April of 2020, is the last time we heard from him. Wow. April so, of 2020. So almost four years almost ago. Almost four now. years. Yeah. Yeah. So take a breath at that moment. Mm -hmm. I kept waiting for the next shoe to drop. I kept waiting yeah. for something to happen. I was still experiencing PTSD symptoms. Even driving in my town was like, is he going to be somewhere? Is he going to yeah. pop out of the shadows? That's what it felt like. And it sent me on a healing journey. It sent me on a, I need to understand this. There clearly is more out there than I ever allowed. So if they can talk to angels, I can too, damn it. I just have to figure it out. That was my attitude. That was yeah. my attitude. I need to learn about the body. I need to learn about trauma. I need to learn about how do I connect to all of these things. I need to understand why this happened to me. And really that's the journey I've been on for the last almost four years now is to understand what happened and why and to bring awareness to all of these things because yeah. I had no idea. You watch the movies about it and it thinks this happens in Honduras and Colombia and all these mm -hmm. other places. It feels not real. Yeah. But it's actually human trafficking is happening in, in our backyards, every single yeah. town. And it doesn't look just like the shipping containers. Yeah. It doesn't look like that. Even trafficked victims don't look like trafficked victims just chained to a wall like you see in the movies. Yes, that happens. And it looks very different. And I think it's really important to share these kind of stories because we would never know otherwise. Yeah, we need to shine a light on it. There needs to be exactly. a hell of a lot more awareness brought around this. And how long were you guys married? It was 10 years just before the divorce was final. 10 years. And so how have your kids adjusted? You have three, right? I have three. Yes. And so the truth is, I mean, they lost a parent. Yeah. So there was another set of trauma to unwind. Yeah. I mean, it, five, seven, and nine, they didn't understand. They didn't understand because that's how they were in the divorce. And they didn't know they were in danger in that way. They just mm. knew that daddy was gone, essentially. Yeah. And the conversations I've had with them, I've really, and this is working through therapists and all the things, mm -hmm. is placing blame where it's due. Because all of his deviances and inappropriateness, he also chose not to get help. He chose yeah. not to take the steps he could have taken. He yeah. chose not to do the disclosures and the 
therapy and the treatments and everything else, he made that choice. Yeah. Knowing the consequence was to not see them anymore. And that's the message I've given them. And yes, there's a lot of emotion. Yes, there's a lot of anger and frustration. And as they've gotten older, I've shared more as age appropriately as I can, because I don't believe that hiding that from them is the right decision. I going through my own childhood with my parents' divorce, my mom didn't tell me the details of all of what happened. And I ended up blaming her because when I did find the details, it was through the eyes of my father, who was the abuser in this case. And I was angry with her for taking my dad away. And I think it's really important to be transparent about my experience and why I made the decisions I made so that they have all the information they need. As you said, as it is age appropriate, you let them know the information that is proper for them. What was the biggest or most valuable takeaway or lesson for you through this experience? Well, probably the very biggest one is that I had to stop giving my power to other people. I gave my power to my husband to tell me the truth of everything. I didn't trust my instincts. I didn't trust my body. I didn't trust any of myself. I gave the power to all the lawyers. I gave the power to everybody else to tell me who I was, what I should do, how do I, everything. And everything only got worse every time I did that. And the moment I took that back and I said, no, I'm in charge. This is the outcome we need. We need to be safe. We need security. We need all of these things. And how are you going to help me get those things? It's not that I needed to do it by myself, but I needed to be the one driving the bus. And that shift in me really helped me get to the point I am today and is is how I operate my life today. And I think so many people as we're, we're going through life and the way that we learn to exist in society, we don't trust ourselves. And that was probably the very biggest lesson is that I need to trust my inner guidance first. For sure. We all need to lean into that intuition. It's there within exactly. all of us. It's just a matter of being able to trust in it and allow it to come through. Now, in challenging times like what you experience, people often develop coping mechanisms. How did you Mm -hmm. cope with the emotional turmoil and stress resulting from your spouse's actions? So I, I didn't know what I was doing consciously at the time, but I was gifted a treadmill by my sister-in-law at the time. And she said, Hey, I don't want this thing. You want it. And I said, yeah, I've got three kids full time. Cause while he was on bond, I was completely on my own and I had deleted social media. I isolated from friends. I wasn't doing anything. And so we started getting on the treadmill, just walking at first every mm-hmm. single day, just to do one thing for me. And I didn't know how important it was to move then, but now yeah. I understand what I was doing. I was moving the energy and the emotions in my body in a way that I couldn't consciously understand yet. Sometimes I'd be running and I'd start crying and tears would come out and I'd get angry and the emotions would bubble up, but it gave me a space to process. And I got to the point where I was running three miles every day and wow. I did that all the way through my divorce. And so that that movement, that choice to take care of my physical health in that fashion, not only did I drop a ton of weight, but I also had, which was very welcome at the time, but it gave me an outlet. It gave me a a moment in time where my mind was quiet. And I don't know if the movement is everybody's thing, but for me, it saved me. That's amazing. And like you said, it had its benefits. Otherwise too, you lost weight and you you needed to do something for you to get you out of your head, to get you out of your headspace, right? And I think a lot of mothers, especially no matter what they're going through, have a really hard time taking any amount of time to themselves. Yeah, for sure. Society, of course, can be very judgmental. How have mm-hmm. you navigated the stigma and potential judgments from others? And what advice do you have for individuals facing similar situations? So there was a lot. Obviously, in the very beginning, I shut out the world. I couldn't look at it. I couldn't face it. But since I've taken my story public, I was prepared in a different way. I knew it was coming. The moment I took my story to social media, and you're sharing one-minute clips at the time, people yeah. you what you bailed him out how could you yeah. and and the judgment and you should lose your kids too and you're just as bad at all all of the things what i've been able to do is use those opportunities for my benefit to see where i'm still holding any judgment or guilt in myself because through the journey i've had i've i understand that emotional piece i understand the stories we're telling us and the mindset components and i have the tools to help release those pieces and so i always check in and i read them and then i've flipped it around because what ends up happening is I get those judgments on social media and then I have five more people commenting, coming to my defense. And then my story or my reel or whatever goes viral because I have people coming to my defense and I leave it. I don't touch it. I don't delete them. 
I let them go because the point is to spread awareness. The point yeah. is to reach more people. And if your judgments are going to help me do that, well, great. You do you. And so I've been able to find gratitude for them in that. I've been able to say, is there any piece of me that believes this? And if so, let me go deal with my pieces and then let it actually serve me. Beautiful. That's a great way to look at it. I mean, I'm sure there's tons and tons of judgment from all sorts of people. I mean, what about his family? I haven't heard from them either. They supported him. They wanted us to stay together. And through the divorce, they didn't speak to me at all. And then once I got full custody, they I haven't heard from them in even longer than him. So my kids lost not just a father, but their entire side of the family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Poor yeah. kids. That's a lot for them to process and go through and deal with. And yep. uh, considering the nature of your spouse's actions, how do you empathize with the victims of sex trafficking? And have your perspectives on the issue evolved? Yes, they have. So not just from my ex-husband's actions, but also my own childhood experiences, especially in teenage years. I was the wild promiscuous child who mm. knew everything. And parts of my story that are somewhat mentioned in, in my book, but less so, is that I came herringly close to being trafficked myself. And then I ended up marrying into it unknowingly, obviously. Mm. So this is a big part of my journey and my soul mission, as you might say. And I, first of all, recognize that the victims often don't even know what's happening in the beginning. They don't even know what's it's a boyfriend or somebody or they have whatever level of trauma that they have that gets them sucked into this and they yeah. don't even know what's happening until it's too late. And so there's that component. And then there's the, a lot of people look at prostitutes, for instance, is right. like they're choosing that. And I think there are instances where that's the case. And there's yeah. the larger majority where it's not the case and they don't have a say in the matter and they're not just trying to make a living. And even if they are at that point, it's because they don't know anything different. And I think that it's really important to not look at them as the problem either. And right. I think a lot of times people are like, yes, let's walk up the prostitutes. That's yeah. not the answer either. They need support. They need help getting out of it. And if they're under control of somebody else, even more so. And I have a lot of empathy for their situation. I'm not mad. Oh, you're the ones my husband was cheating on me with. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. it's on him, not them. And yeah. their situation is in a lot of cases more, more dire. And while I do feel like I was his biggest victim because of the connection I had, I am not his only victim. Yeah. And if I can do anything to support and bring awareness to the reality of the world we're living in, that's my goal. In the aftermath of discovering his actions, what lessons have you learned about yourself, relationships, and the complexities of human behavior? Well, a lot. <laughs> I learned that I still was very much asleep and choosing to be blind to things that were in front of my face. I learned that I chose not to see things, that it wasn't available to me. Yes, he was a very good manipulator. He was very good at lying. But I did have more awarenesses than I was willing to admit. I also learned that I had myself completely emotionally turned off. I learned how to do that as a child because it wasn't safe to have emotions around my father. And so I right. learned that you don't have emotions with men. It's, that's, it's a physical connection. That's it. And I had no idea that was the marriage I was in. I didn't, I thought things were normal. And I have since understood that there are far more complexities to human connection and safety within our emotional state and safety within our mental state and safety physically, and that they're not the same. Yeah. It's much more complex than that. And finding somebody who you can have emotional safety with was not something I ever experienced before. Right. And even knowing that was a thing was new to me. And since all of this, I've really focused on understanding safety in many different dimensions and understanding the judgments that we hold on ourselves for the emotions we're having and the choices we make. And all of that has really helped me not just understand and release things within myself, but to share as much as I can with others who are going through abusive relationships, court cases, even childhood trauma things. Yeah. It all stems back to a need to have safety within ourselves instead of giving that to some outside source. Well, for sure. It's like everything else, right? Everything starts from within us yes. and we do have to do the self-work in exactly. order just to begin healing, to begin spreading exactly. that message. It's It all starts here. And so how has this experience impacted your mental health and what strategies have you employed to prioritize your well-being? So 
Believe it or not, getting out of it really helped my mental health, obviously. During it, I was not doing good. I was running, I was working, and a lot of those things were actually really helpful because I was able to focus on other things too. It wasn't all consuming as much as it could have been. But since all of that, I actually had this moment after my divorce where I realized that I successfully manifested the impossible. Nobody gets full custody anymore today. Like the 50-50 is the gold standard. People share custody with their abusers and their children's abusers every damn day. And I couldn't even have dreamed that he would just go away. That wasn't on the table. And I had this realization that if I can do that, I can do anything. That's how it felt. Like I succeeded at the impossible. And- All I did was trust myself and take action consistently and to trust each action. If it didn't work out, there was some reason. It was all for me. And that shift, that mental shift that the world is happening for me, not to me, has empowered every single challenge since then in a different way. It's, yeah, I have the emotion about it. Oh, this is uncomfortable. Yes, but there's a reason. And I don't know what it is yet, but it's there. And every time I come back to that and I come back to my self-accountability and my inner knowing, it helps move through it. And I can prioritize myself with, I don't run every single day anymore, but I still need movement and I still need quiet. And my kids are older now. They're eight, 11, and 13. So it's it's a different world. Yes. But I'm able to say, I need something and my needs actually have to come first so that I then can take care of you all. And as a mom, I believed, especially in the beginning, that I would be okay if my kids were okay. And the opposite is true. My kids are going to be okay because I'm okay. There you go. And that's a massive shift undertake to realize that you have Mm -hmm. to put yourself first. And yes, of course, you have your kids are top priority. But you're right. If you're not prioritizing your own mental health and well-being, that's going to spill out onto the kids. Yeah. And I have found through every challenge, the more I stay calm, the more I stay grounded, the easier all of them can work through whatever it is. Beautiful. Obviously, the trust was shattered in your circumstance. Mm -hmm. How have you approached the process of rebuilding trust in your own life, both with others and within yourself? Well, most people are surprised to hear I'm remarried already. So I've really had to work on this one. And the truth is I wasn't trusting myself even when I married my ex-husband. I was six months pregnant when we got married and I believed that this was the next step and this is what we should do. And even the feelings I had in the very beginning, I shoved away. I explained away. I let him explain away because there were signs. There were lots of signs. And seeing them in hindsight, recognizing that I did actually see the things, I just chose not to assign any meaning to them. I chose to shove it away, helped me realize it wasn't that I didn't know. It's that I chose not to know. And going forward, I get to choose to know. I get to choose to say, this feels this doesn't feel good. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to actually have emotions in this situation, whether it's uncomfortable or not. I'm going to see that you have emotions and we're going to talk about it. And when I met my now husband, it was the first time I experienced emotional safety with a man. And I literally didn't know what it was until I experienced it firsthand. And I remember feeling like, oh, this is what a relationship is supposed to feel like. Oh, (laughs) it was just this, huh? I didn't know men could do that. And it's funny to look back on, but it's true. There's no model for this in the, in most of society. And an understanding that I needed not just a physical connection with a partner, but I needed to share my thoughts and my yeah. fears and my emotions. And I needed a spiritual connection at this point too, because of who I had become. And, and I actually met my now husband at a spiritual workshop. And so okay. we were already on this journey and neither of us were expecting anything at yeah. all. Yeah. And life really just sort of shoved it together and said, here you go. And being able to have three boys and have an emotionally aware man in their lives is huge to me. And trusting myself and being able to bring things up. And even if he doesn't want to talk about it, the moment it comes up, it's we do talk about it, whatever it is, even it's just my feelings are hurt in this moment. And that really helps me have trust in a different way because it's all on the table at all times. It's all there. That's and a whole other level. It's a whole other level. It's a connection where it's almost like I you see through them in a different way and you see mm. all the dimensions of them and you 
invite them to see you in a different way. And that type of relationship, trust isn't even the right word anymore. And being able to experience that after, they're just not even comparable. Yeah, for sure. Now, how have you found healing and resilience in your own life? And what advice do you have for others who may be dealing with the aftermath of a loved one's involvement in general, illegal activities or situations similar to yours? Yeah. So, I mean, the healing journey is multi-layered, complex, and not linear. And I think that everybody's version of that is different. And for me, I've done everything I can to try to share what I went through, what my thought process, everything. But I also have recognized at this point that everybody does it different. And I think it's important for people to know that your experience isn't going to be the same as somebody else's and to yeah. not judge yourself for that. If you're, if you go up and down and sideways, that's okay. And the point is to give yourself grace and to trust the process for yourself, not based upon and com in comparison to other people. And when people have loved ones going through challenging times, whether it's my family, if anything, tried to support me as I was going through. And one of the biggest things that pushed me away from them was their judgments, their opinions about what I should do, because it made me feel like they didn't get it. They didn't understand the complexity of what I was holding. And yes, they were farther removed and could see more than I could, but it meant that I didn't feel safe around them because they felt the judgment from them, even if it wasn't verbal. And so it's really important to check yourself. Can you sit to not judgments of this person's process as whatever is happening and hold space. And yes, yeah. of course you want them to go through it. You want them to see, but what they need more than anything is love and compassion. But they also, they could not fully understand what you've been through because they haven't been in the situation. They can empathize exactly. 100%, yes. but they can never yes. fully understand. No one can ever fully understand no. unless they've been in your shoes and gone through your situation. So a hundred percent empathy there. It, it does. And it has to be without judgment. And that's, yeah. that is probably the hardest thing for people to do for somebody else. And if you can't, it's better to stay away. And that's a hard truth, but it's far better than projecting your judgments. For sure. Because um, that's, well, it just doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Well, it damages things further, I it think. Does. And so how has this experience impacted your relationships with your family? Speaking of family and friends, mm -hmm. and what advice do you have for other supporting individuals facing yeah. similar challenges? Yeah. So my mom and I went had a really challenging time on, you know, I didn't know the details of even her story in yeah. the same way. And I held a ton of judgment to her. I, in fact, told her, how dare you imply I leave him? You're the one who took my father away. I mean, I said those mm. words to my mother right. and I had all of that to unravel and she tried to support and she eventually figured out she needed to stay away until I was ready. And when I was ready, it was invaluable to have somebody who had experienced not the same thing, no, but a similar unraveling for herself. Mm -hmm. And with my father, there was physical abuse and she also got full custody of us. And honestly, the parallels are kind of eerie yeah. and being able to have somebody who had been through even something similar really helped me understand my feelings, but it, I wasn't ready until I was ready. And yeah. my sister had a lot of judgment in her own ways and doesn't have an understanding. And so, you know, now that I'm through, we've reconnected, but for definitely a period there, it was more challenging. And, yeah. and friends, they tried. I had people bring me food and different things like that. And honestly, my friends have shifted in a lot of ways. Like I, I'm a different person than I used to be. And that's sure. okay too. And that's okay too. And when you have people in your life going through challenging times, it's hard not to want to come in and fix it, but yeah. you can't fix it. It's really, what do you need and how can I support you? And do you need me to bring you food? Do you want me to just sit here in the room with you? Can I listen? Those are the kind of things that are really important because the goal is to help the person not feel alone not yeah. feel like they're in this totally by themselves and they're stuck in their heads and everybody in the world is judging them. To hold loving compassion for people, to just sit and hold space is one of the most important things that somebody going through this or any type of big challenge needs. But as humans, we want to fix things for the we ones do. we love and the ones we care we about. Do. And you can't, unfortunately. No, you can't. You can offer suggestions if that's what they're asking for, but it's yes. really important to check. Is that what there's you want? The, do you want the solution? The there's the key. Do you, and a lot of times people are like... No, I just need to sit in it. Yeah. And if they can have that awareness, you have to be okay with that. Yeah, for sure. 
Now, I want to speak and shift gears into your advocacy work that you do. Mm -hmm. What was the turning point that led you to become an advocate against trafficking? Mm -hmm. And how did you find the strength to turn that painful situation into a platform for change? So when I succeeded at my divorce, the message was really loud, really loud that I succeeded at something that the vast majority of people don't. And that was a huge, not almost burden in a sense in the beginning because, well, I have to do something. I It hit me so hard that I succeeded in part due to racial and economic privilege as well. And that I got taken seriously in a way that not everybody does. I had a job, I had money to pay the lawyers and I was seen as fully put together. I wasn't on social services. I wasn't in the system in that way. And that women, especially of color or women in poverty, are not taken seriously. And that lit a fire in me in a different way that that's just unacceptable. And what am I going to do about it? And how am I going to help? And how am I going to bring awareness to these things happening? And how am I going to let people know that trafficking is happening in your town too? And you may even know somebody who's not only being trafficked, but who's purchasing them. You may know both sides unknowing to you because my ex, he worked at a normal company, made a good six-figure salary, was well-respected, all the things. Nobody had any idea. And it's so important to understand what is happening and that not only is those things happening, but that the legal system is also not helping the situation. And the fact that he got only probation because he was a upper-middle-class white man. And so let's just put him in treatment. That's it. We don't have room in the jails. I don't know even what we're thinking. It's insanity to me that there are people in jail for far less. And he didn't even get a couple of months. Even his lawyer was surprised actually that they offered only probation. She said, I expected you to get at least like a three to six month jail time sentence, which again, it's not very much. But the fact that the court system is not trauma informed, the court system is blaming the victims when they react in trauma. And the fact that I had a deep trauma bond to him because he was the only one who understood what I was going through because he was going through it too. And he caused it. And so I actually had a deeper connection with him through his criminal trial, which was one of the most shameful things to admit. And yet it happens all the time and people don't talk about it. And the advocacy work is for me is primarily focused on helping people who are fighting for custody from their abusers and their children's abusers. And my foundation is very focused on that because of the lack of trauma-informed legal practices, but that these are coming from all sorts of situations. And They're coming with people who are victims that don't even always know that's what's happening. And that's the hardest thing to fight is without the awareness of what's there, you can't fight it. Well, people don't want to admit that this is going on, first of all, in in their own backyards. It's It's going on everywhere. In every city, it's happening. People are hiding their heads in the sand because they either, one, they don't want to believe it. Two, they're just ignorant and don't realize what's going on. And it needs to change. And we need to change that by speaking about it. We need to have the conversations like this and share these conversations with people so that they can educate themselves and bring awareness around it to start to shift things. A hundred percent. I heard the message that I had to write the book and I had to do it. I And I was talking to publishers and editors and they do all kinds of marketing research on what's the comparables to your book and all the things. A single person has ever written a book from the wife's perspective. And when I saw that, I was like, I have to. This is important. There are victim stories. There are perpetrator stories. There are no stories from the wife's perspective of the family members and the other side of this entire thing and the impact to kids in a in a sideways way, but still an impact to children. And that was shocking to me that nobody had ever done that. And so I, okay, I guess we're doing this. Now, reducing the demand for trafficking is a critical aspect of combating this crime. In your opinion, what steps should individuals, communities, and governments be taking to address the root causes and create sustainable change in the fight against sex trafficking or human So, in my opinion, everything is rooted in trauma. Every addiction, whether it be sex addiction, drug addiction, etc., every homelessness, poverty, illness, disease, literally every challenge that the world is facing is rooted in deep ancestral trauma. And the the lack of recognition in all of the systems of that is the root cause to me is a huge challenge. It feels like a barrier in a sense, because even the perpetrators are coming from a place of trauma. And to be able to see that perspective now 
to see that I don't know the details of my ex-husband's childhood trauma, but I know it's there. And you don't enter that world without a whole lot of deep-rooted mental health and potential physical trauma that has happened to you. And that is the actual root cause that nobody's talking about. And yes, we need to get them off the streets in a sense. And yes, they need support, but they don't need to rewire that they're not attracted to children. They need to address what happened to them and to understand why this is coming forward and why this is the case and put things in place to make sure that we're not repeating the cycle because reality is the victims become perpetrators and that cycle will continue over and over. And if we don't stop, we're just going to keep blaming what was victims for what's happening. And to be able to see somebody doing horrific things and also recognize that stemming from a place of trauma is a place that I don't think the world is quite ready for. But I do think that's the shift that needs to happen and Mm. to have real mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual support for people on both ends. For sure. It's like the abused become the abuser in in a lot of cases, right? It's the same kind of thing. A hundred percent. Learned behaviors and that's what you grew up with. So you're going to perpetuate. Now, of course, that doesn't happen in every situation, but it is quite common. It is. And you just, in order to process your own childhood experiences, you justify it being okay because you're okay. Or so you say. Yeah. So you think, so you say, yes. (laughs) Right. It's okay to hit my kid because I was spanked. That's a minor version, but it's the exact same thing that gets repeated in this instance. On a grander scale. Yeah. Now, through your work, you have become a voice for survivors and raised awareness about the issue. What advice would you give to individuals who want to become allies in the fight against Mm -hmm. trafficking and support survivors in meaningful ways? So first of all, if you have a story, no matter how far removed, if you have a story, it needs to be shared. The stories are the gateway. The stories are the way to relate to people in all spectrums of this experience, to the victims, to the family members, to the survivors, to the everybody. The stories help people feel seen. And so if you have a story or somebody have a story, it has to be spoken about. And that takes a lot of courage and a lot of work to get to the point where you feel safe to tell the stories. But if you can get there, that's huge when it comes to additional advocacy. If you don't, but you just have a heart for it, find an organization that does speak to you. Find ways that you can contribute time, dollars, et cetera. The world still operates on money, unfortunately, and supporting the organizations that are doing things, sharing their messages, even literally sharing social media content to spread awareness is huge. And finding those people that you resonate with and lifting them up is one of the most impactful things you can do. Now, let's talk more about your book. I would love Mm -hmm. for you to speak a little bit more about that. The title, what the experience was, what the experience was like for you sharing and writing that story and putting it out into the world. How cathartic was that process for you and how easy or difficult was the process? Very cathartic. So the title of the book is The Sex Trafficker's Wife, A Story of Truth, Faith, and Trust in Self. I intentionally chose a shocking title because I wanted people to go, what? what? Tell me more. I... I did it on purpose because of the shock factor of the experience. And yet I felt it very important to speak it and not hide in a softer title. And so I got the message to write the book right after the divorce was final. I started writing in January of 2021. I really like fully committed to doing it and I could write pretty consistently. And then I would have to put it down for months at a time because in order to write it, I had to relive everything in detail, which meant my body re-experienced everything that was happening. But I got to experience it from the other side, even though it felt like I was experiencing it in real time. But that allowed me to actually finally release a lot of those pieces because I could recognize and I was working on learning all of these other healing methods. And so I could respond to my body in a different way. And it took me two years from the the time I committed to writing to actually getting it launched and published. And it seems like a short time, but it was also months of downtime and then months of hyper-focus. Like it would just flip back and forth. And even getting to the point where have I put enough? Is there more stories that need to come out? Because you could just go on and on. And is my message clear? Is there enough here that people can relate to the pieces? And has my body responded to enough? And since I have published, I actually just learned this really interesting fact about PTSD victims. And that's the PTSD is actually when memories get coded incorrectly. And instead of being coded as past memories, they get 
get coded as present experiences. And that's part of why people experience present physical reactions to triggers when they are a PTSD victims. Okay. And that for me, the act of writing my book recoded all of that back into the past because I was writing it from this different state. And I was able to release it and move it as this person is over here. And I'm, especially as I get to the end of the book, I'm a different person today. Yeah. And I could release those last memories and those traumas from my system in a way that I didn't understand as I started the process. And so how has the book been received so far? So I got number one bestseller within the first months of launching, which was fantastic. Thank you. I took the story to social media in order to advertise. And I did that. I'm going to throw it all out there. And I had quite a few viral videos go out there and people are like, what? And so I definitely have the naysayers and the judgments, and but they don't go buy the book and read the book. The people who respond to me and say, oh my God, you wrote my story or, oh my God, that happened to me. Or I thought I was the only one that's stupid. I've had all versions of that. And my goal in writing the book was truly to help others feel less alone and to help people realize that they could choose to change their lives too. And that message, I feel like those who needed it have been able to see it and feel it and have huge gratitude and then talk about it. I've had amazing response from people in that situation. And it has now opened up new doors for me to go do the next set of things. And I feel like I'm just barely getting started. And it's great. What a beautiful gift. I love it. Now, As you mentioned at the beginning, you're also the host of a podcast. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah. So my podcast is called The Amanda Quick Show. It's really my platform to share what's going on in my head. I'm a speaker. I'm a talker. I've learned so much. I have new realizations and awarenesses that I believe need to be out there into the world. And so I share my story. I talk about the healing journey. I talk about parenting through trauma and after trauma. I talk about these spiritual downloads that come through and these new awarenesses of how we all operate differently and what that looks like. This month, I've been really focused on human trafficking awareness and kind of deconstructing a lot of myths about that and the troubles in the system. And I'm now going to do a TEDx talk here in less than two weeks. So I'm going to talk about that process. It's really my journey. It's a platform for me to share the things that are loud to me and are important to me. And eventually, I want to bring on people to help share and lift up their stories as they come through the other side. But for the moment, the vast majority of it is me speaking into the world, whoever wants to listen. (laughs) Can you had mentioned very briefly about your organization you started? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So that's called the Golden Haven Foundation. And we just got our 5013C just getting off the ground. And the goal is to support people fighting for custody from their abusers and their children's abusers. And it's a very pointed focus because my divorce was 18 months long and $75,000. And it was a hard battle. And like I said before, most people don't have access to those resources. Most people aren't taken seriously. And if you've got racial or economic challenges, well, you are kind of SOL, unfortunately. And that is not okay with me. And so my goal is in the organization is to fundraise for actual cash grants to help people with the legal fees because there's a ton of resources for homelessness, for food, for all the basic needs, but nobody's helping with a legal fight when it especially is faced with abusers. And that's just unacceptable. And I also want to help people with the mental and emotional shifts that are required to even have the fight because the money isn't what saved me. I saved me, but I had to get to the point to where the money could actually be supportive for me. And I want to do both. And I want to build community and help people again. No, they're not alone. They're not the only ones going through these challenges. I mean, these people that don't have the financial resources, what happens to them? There's no way. They share share custody with their abusers. They stay in PTSD. And even worse, often they get marked as the the problem one. They're the challenge. And sometimes even the abusers get full custody in those situations. And the kids are who suffers. Well, the work you're doing is incredible. I think it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. What would you say is one of the most most important things you've learned in your life and what was your life like before learning it and what was your life like after you learned it? Oh man, I have learned a lot of things in my life. <laughs> I am definitely somebody who has to touch the fire first. If you're a human design follower, I am an experimenter and it is absolutely accurate. I have had to learn that it's Well, yes, I have to touch the fire because I have to understand. I have to know the full dimensions of everything, but I don't have to repeat it. And I had to realize that all of the challenges that 
I have truly created because I believe that I am now the creator of my reality. And I even was then. I just was blind to it in a sense. But I created those things for me to create a bigger thing to share. And it's this belief that I'm, in a sense, a vessel and a channel to share these experiences that I have created as I experience them. And the awareness that it's bigger than me, it's bigger than me, it's bigger than all of us individually. It's far more about the world I'm creating, the the world I want my kids to grow up in, all of that, that shift has been massive because prior I was very self-selfish. I was very self-centered. I knew everything. Literally, I knew everything. 17-year-old me knew everything. That's common among a lot of teenagers. (laughs) It is, but I operated like that. And you couldn't tell me one direction or another. And life really threw me a big one to show that I don't know everything, but I do know myself and I can know myself and I can know my whys and I can know what's important to me. And trusting that process has been just massive for me. And I'm excited for the future in a different way. And yeah, there's going to be challenges, but I feel far more prepared for them than I was as a know-it-all. I love it. Who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? Oh, I've had a lot of impactful people in my life. The truth is my childhood, my parents were hugely impactful in shaping my journey and the choices I made and a rejection of my mom's ways and a rejection of everything else that I've now been responding to and unwinding. I don't have this like person I look up to or this teacher or anything like that because every time I've tried, they show me what I don't like about the world more than what I do. And those things have also huge impact and purpose and the methods and modalities I've learned are really valuable, but then the business practice are things I don't want to embody. And I've really had to understand that the way that I learn is in a lot of ways, all the things I don't like before I can choose what I do. And that what I want to create is this, I'm the one creating it and I'm not copying anybody else. And so all of the teachers I've had, all of the, even my parents and their journey have been hugely impactful, just not in the, not in the way that you might think. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful, Amanda? So today I understand my superpowers exist in my ability to see all perspectives. I am one of the few people I have ever met that can hold space and really hear horrific, traumatic events and not have an emotional response that's going to throw something into somebody else's field. Because most therapists can't hold space for really big things. They try to hide it, but everybody has their own opinions and judgments and stories. And my ability to hold a container that's completely non-judgmental is something I have yet to see in somebody else. Because I have been at the bottom of the bottom and I'm not going to judge you for your choices at that place. I don't even have a place to judge you for that. And being able to hold that for other people and to be able to see all of the perspectives, people feel seen in a way that they maybe never have before because I don't hold judgment. And that superpower has really served me well when it comes to supporting others who have been through their own challenges. That's a beautiful gift to give to people as well. Speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? Success to me isn't monetary. Success to me is impact. Success to me is the more people that I can support and the more people I can impact, the more people I can make, think, feel, do anything that's different than their monotonous habitual patterns, the more successful I am. Like truly, it's all spectrums of impact. It's feel something, know something new, take a different action. I believe that what I'm here to do is make an impact and that's what's going to make me feel successful. What does the word empowerment mean to you? Empowerment to me means that you are empowered to choose your destiny, your life. You take back the power in a sense of your safety doesn't come from outside of self. Your decisions don't come from outside of self. Your Everything about your life stems from your actual choices and that you become empowered to have your feelings, your thoughts, your processes that then create your reality. And that, that shift from outside to inside is empowerment. Beautiful. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be two, three, four word answer type thing, okay? Got it. How would you describe yourself in one word? Truth. What is your favorite self-care practice? Running. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? To trust itself. What is one thing you want but cannot buy with money? Love. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would that be? The stories. 
And that concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? Oh man, there are many. I am actually grateful today to my ex-husband. Like people think I'm nuts, but I am grateful because I wouldn't be the person I am today without him. I would not be in any way, shape or form aware in being able to support and hold space for other people. Well, the and I'm actually fucking yeah. huge. Yeah. I'm grateful for my trauma. And if people can get there, that to me is where things will really change. Well, that's where the whole forgiveness piece comes in and not forgiving your ex for his transgressions, what he's like. The forgiveness piece is for you. Yes, exactly. And when it, you it's forgiving that, 100%. Ahead. Yeah. Yeah. It's forgiving myself for the choices I made, not knowing what I didn't know and for being in my trauma and holding space and grace for myself allows me to do it for other people. It allows me to see myself differently and it allows me to forgive myself and have huge gratitude for the opportunity for that transformation. Well, the forgiveness of him for who he is also, that is for you too. It's not for him. The forgiveness is for you to be able to remove that weight from your neck and be able to move forward in your life. It's true. And what he wanted more than anything was for me to forgive him. And I couldn't do it with him. I couldn't do it. And it's actually in my book and one of the like the acknowledgements where I finally can say, I forgive you because I'm actually grateful to you now. And releasing that I'm not holding any of it anymore. Yeah. And that's the key is that you're not holding on to that resentment and anger because going through that, if you're holding on to that, you're the only one that's going to suffer through it. He's not going to suffer for you holding on to it. It's going to be you and your kids and your relationships, all your relationships, your friends, your family. They're the ones who are going to suffer from that. Correct. And I can see the trauma that he was sitting in. I can see the challenge he was sitting in. And no, that doesn't make it okay. And I certainly don't forget. And I want him nowhere, nowhere in our lives. That's absolutely. But I can also see that he chose to stay in his stuff. And in a sense, that's very sad, but that's Mm -hmm. his choice to make. Yeah, that's right. Amanda, what is your why? My why truly has been my children and my children now include my mission, in a sense, the things that I'm birthing into the world. It, The same energy of these humans that are the most important thing, they taught me that even when I couldn't fight for me, there was still fight in me because I could fight for them. And as I've been birthing these missions out, I, I see it the same way. I'm you know, supporting and encouraging and helping this mission like it's a child. It's that important. And it's about this world that we're all creating to live in. For sure. That's beautiful. If you could step into my shoes, what question would you have asked yourself that I didn't ask you? Hmm. You asked a lot of really good questions. (laughs) (laughs) I would ask me how to speak to the people who don't seem ready. Because there are a lot of people who say they're ready, but they sit and they repeat in their patterns and they continue to do the same thing over and over again. And how do you respond to those people? Okay. Answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is where, this is one of the hardest things to do. And as a mentor, coach, healer, it is also really hard to do because if you can see perspectives of people, you can see potential in them and you can see the potential of what they could choose but you can't choose for them just as I couldn't choose to help my ex-husband heal. I couldn't choose to have him face his demons and his trauma, even though I really wanted to. And for me, recognizing the difference between somebody saying that they want to heal and somebody actually taking the steps and making the shifts and taking the action is been a challenging lesson that I have had to go through, even as I support new people. And so it's really letting their actions speak for themselves instead of their words. Because for me, I have a huge heart to these people and I have gotten sucked into trying to help people that aren't ready. And at the exact same time, I believe if I can just plant enough seeds in other ways that eventually they'll pick them up and they'll see that it is their choice. And so I actually approach it in two ways. I put tons of free content out there. I have a book that's easy, accessible, and when they're ready, they'll find me. Beautiful. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman Mm -hmm. in the world, who would it be and why? I would sit down with Oprah because I want to know why somebody with that amount of money, influence, power isn't doing more. And I would really challenge some of the choices that have been made with in really anybody in that position and that level of influence. And I would offer some options here. I don't have the money and resources and all of the things that you claim to stand for, put some money where your mouth is. There we go. I love it. (laughs) 
If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? So I've been asked this one before and I would never go back and say, don't marry him because I wouldn't have my three children and I can't imagine a world where that's not, but that's the case. But I would say the moment he shows himself, believe him and trust Last- yourself, really. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one for sure. Lastly, Amanda, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? Last 30 seconds, man. Every single person has the power to choose their lives. It's up to them whether they choose the world that's created for them or the world they create for themselves. The choice is always yours and you have to trust yourself to do it. Beautiful. Amanda, thank you so much for taking and making the time to be here with me today to share your story, your journey, and the beautiful light you're putting out into the world through all the incredible work that you're doing to help others. I think it's absolutely incredible. I am honored to have had the opportunity to sit down and speak with you. It's been such a pleasure. Can you share with the audience where they can connect with you if they want to learn more about the work Mm -hmm. you're doing or they want to work with you? Yeah, absolutely. My website, amandaquickhealing.com. The foundation is thegoldenhaven.org. And my book is The Sex Trafficker's Wife. And all of those exist on all the channels. And of course, we'll put all the links into Mm -hmm. the show notes when we release your episode. Once again, my name is Brad Welsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Amanda Quick. She is an international bestselling author a podcast host, public speaker, and a sex and human trafficking advocate. Amanda, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. I am honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. Thank you for your time and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca Follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.